Good evening, everyone, and, and Merry Christmas to each of you. My name, if you don't know, is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as a pastor of Wesco Hassett Chapel, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here this evening, and I want to thank God, who is the strength behind it all, and I want to know, and us to know, that we should be glad that we're here together in the company of one another, assured of God's presence, confident of God's love on this night before Christmas. So what I would do is invite you to open your Bible to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation into chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible this evening, there is one provided for you in the seat in front of you or or beneath you. And if you're unfamiliar with, with that Bible, you would just need to turn to page 867, 867, and you will be right where you need to be. What we're going to do is read from the first eight verses. I'm going to read from the verse, first eight verses as you follow along. But our main concern this evening is only going to be with verse 5. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you please just stand one more time as we bow to pray and ask God for the needed help that we probably all need this evening. Our God and Father, it is our deepest desire to give you the glory due your name as we study the Bible this Christmas Eve night. All year long, you, God, have been the decisive factor and much-needed provider in everything we do. And this evening, God, is no different. Where would we be without your help, O God, our Father? And so, God, we ask you to come and do what we cannot do for ourselves. We ask that those in unbelief will no longer remain there. Those in need will be helped greatly by you. And those who think themselves unloved in Christ will know and see and feel themselves loved this night. And we ask, God, that you would enable all of us 
to set aside all the good activities that are waiting for us this evening for a moment and let you speak to us by your spirit, through your word, through the voice of a mere man who desperately needs your help. So then, God, we come to you for these things and more. For Jesus' sake, amen. You can be seated. Now, a week ago yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, there was a half-page advertisement put in by CNBC highlighting a special report they are doing entitled Predictions 2011. It was very dramatic. It was a huge question mark on the left side of the advertisement. And on the right-hand side was a headline that read like this. Fear is in the air. The future is in doubt. Who are you going to trust? Now, just a week before Christmas, it was very nice of them to try to do what they can do to scare the bejeebas out of, out of us just to get some ratings. But fear and these things like this are not new. From our earliest days, we all understood what it meant to be afraid. That's why when children, we would ask our parents to keep the light on at night during bedtime. Because every kid knows that if the light is on, then there's no way the boogeyman can come and get us. And so the fear of the boogeyman kept us asking our parents to keep the light on. And the fear of a high electric bill kept our parents turning the lights off. And so in humans, fear is fear. And we know what it is. Now, in the good old days, fear was brought down under two tabs by psychiatrists. Tab number one was called psychotic fear, and that was a fear that said that was said to be that we were being out of touch with reality, and so we were afraid. And the second tab, what was called neurotic fear, which meant that we understood and we were in touch with reality, and we were still afraid. Now, that was back then, but times have changed, and fears have grown more defined. They're more complex now there's all kinds of fears. There's a fear of flying. There's a fear of dentists. There's a fear of, a fear of crowds. There's sleep terror disorder. There's separation anxiety disorder. And much to my surprise, I discovered a new fear. And the new fear is called arachnobutrophobia. And arachnobutrophobia is the phobia of the, or the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Now, if you're here tonight, and that is you, you can be helped. You can stop eating peanut butter, or if you want to keep eating peanut butter, then you need to do this. You need to fly to London, assuming you're not afraid to, afraid to fly, and you need to go there and go to Harley Street, and you can go to Harley Street, and you'll find a hypnotist there who will help you and treat you with your problem of arachnobutrophobia. Okay, that's life in our world. Now, you've been helped already. Now, I mention all these things because we all know what fear is. And probably there's some of us here, if we were going to be honest, we would know, and we would say that right near now, I'm in fear this evening. Now, our reading this morning came from the book of Revelation. And I know that this book is not a typical book for a Christmas Eve Bible reading. But nevertheless, when people think of this book, they immediately think of the end of the world and terror and fear strikes their heart. But if this book is understood, this book is meant to encourage and not to make us panic. And if you read the Christmas story, which we read some of it already this, this evening, if you read it from the pages of the Bible, you will notice 
that there is a great amount of fear in the Christmas story. Herod is afraid. The shepherds are afraid. Mary is afraid. And they're all frightened by something or something or someone. And so whether it is the fear of life or the fear of the end of the world or the fear of the end of our lives, fear sets people on edge. But it's better to be sent to Christ than to be sent on edge. And that is what this book, given to us by God, like every book in the Bible does. It sends us to Jesus Christ. And so for some, this book gives us, excuse me, for all, this book gives us the answer to all the destruction that will come into the world and all of the difficulties and fears that will come into our life. And this book is a book that sends us to the only answer to those things And the answer is Jesus Christ. Now, as we read, the human author of this book is John. John was placed on the Isle of Patmos by the authorities in Rome. And the reason why is because he was preaching about Jesus Christ. John was told by Christ to preach and declare him. John did that. And John was willing to live with the fallout of his obedience. And so John was told here by an angel to write what he would see to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Western Turkey. And so the people of God, which John is writing to, they're in a sore place. They are afraid because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. And evil seems to be winning, and fear was abounding, and, and they were being persecuted And some were put to death because they believed that Jesus Christ was Lord and they believed that Jesus Christ was the only Savior who could save them from their sins. So they were afraid because they were being persecuted because they believed that Jesus Christ was born in a manger and he was crucified, but now he is resurrected and now he is reigning. They were persecuted and they, for believing and preaching that Jesus was born into this world as Lord, that Jesus is the sole means that men and women can be saved from a wrath that is to come, a wrath that is very real, and a wrath that comes because of humanity's sin and rebellion against the holy and almighty and eternal God. And they were being persecuted for believing and preaching that men and women are eternal beings, And that we will spend eternity with God in heaven or an eternity without God in hell. And where one stands with Christ on earth is the answer to the question, is the only answer to the question of where will one stand in eternity, which automatically makes the birth of Christ absolutely essential and absolutely glorious. So John writes to help them to know and believe and the certain hope that Christ is reigning, Christ is returning, even though the world is crumbling. And Christ himself, at the time of God's choosing, will put an end to evil, will put an end to fear, and will punish forever those who reject his salvation, who reject his rule, and reject his reign. So it's no accident that the opening lines of this letter John reminds us of simple, forever truths. And it comes by way of a doxology. And a doxology is a fancy word that simply means this, to give credit where credit is due. And that's what we're going to do in the next few minutes. We're going to give credit where credit is due, and the credit is due to Christ. 
We're just going to have two little phrases that are going to guide us. You'll see them in verse 5. And the first one is simply this. To him who loves us. That's our first phrase. To him who loves us. Now, you don't need to know this, but I'm going to tell you. In the summer of 1990 in Austin, Texas, in a place called Lincoln Park, on a Friday night, I got down on my knees and I told a young lady that I loved her. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever told anyone that I loved them outside of my parents, my brothers, my sisters, and my best friend. It was a very heavy moment for a number of reasons, which I don't want to get into. But that moment was surpassed by another moment that immediately followed the moment I just described. For without missing a beat, and I have no idea why, the young lady who I just said I loved her looked me square in the eye and said, you got to be kidding. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) She said, I love you. And the young lady's name is Nicole, and she today is my wife. Now, my life on earth would be dramatically different for me. And my wife's life on earth would be dramatically better without me. But that's another story. But things would be different if none of that stuff took place. But life on earth is only so long. And the love that two people have for each other, which is precious, is also limited. It can't save us. It's only the love of God that has accomplished this. And that matters here. And eternity with God for us comes down essentially to three love scenes that God himself has accomplished. Scene number one. It's the scene where God becomes man in his birth through a virgin womb of Mary and Emmanuel is born. In other words, Christmas. Scene number two is where Christ takes our sins, the sins of the world, all our hate, all our lies, and all our lust, all our rebellion, and he takes it in his body on a cross, and he dies a pain-filled death that will never need to be supplemented and never need to be repeated, for he dies his death and pays the penalty of our sins. That scene you may know as Easter. And the third scene is a scene that I hope is true of all of us this evening, is a scene where Our hearts were stirred by the message of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you knew God was telling you, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And he was saying, now is the day of your salvation. Repent and be awakened from your state of being untroubled by your sins. Did you hear that? Repent and be awakened from your state of being untroubled by your sins. Seek the forgiveness you know and the gospel tells you that you need. Turn to Christ. Be reconciled to God. Serve him forever. And that scene you may know as conversion. The loved ones, this is the love that John speaks of here. And God alone is the author of each of these scenes. And this is much more than some kind of Christmas sentimentalism. It is much more than feelings and emotions swirling everywhere that many have at this time of year. This love is steel. This love is indestructible. This love changes the whole dynamic of our lives forever. For this love is not capable by mere human beings. For this love begins with and ends with Almighty God. This is divine love. This is divine beginnings. This is divine and not human stirrings first. Leon Morris, a pastor, says this, left to ourselves, we do not wish to leave our state of untroubled sinfulness. It is because God first loves us and God first convicts and God first enables us that we can make the motion of wanting to turn from our sins. 
You see, in all this, it is one thing for us to tell God that we love him. But it's beyond wonder that God would tell us and show us and catch us and convince us that he loves us. Now listen, this love is not limited to and is not confined to how life unfolds on earth. Listen to your Bible, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that death, life, angels, demons, present, future, any power, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The man who wrote that was the Apostle Paul. He died because he was a Christian. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's our second phrase and it's our final phrase. Freed us. Freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, I don't think I'll ever be able to hear the word freed or freedom and not think of Mel Gibson in a skirt. Mel Gibson as William Wallace in Braveheart with a big sword in his hand and a skirt yelling what? Freedom. Thank you. (laughs) Now, we all know that we all long for freedom of some kind. And all of us do these things. We make bits and pieces of provision for some kind of freedom. So whether it's financial freedom or freedom from life's worries or freedom from sickness or freedom from boredom or freedom from other people or freedom from other people telling us what to do, we all want to be free. And we think that if we could just fix those things, then we would secure freedom. And so you might look at this little verse tonight and he has freed us from our sins by his blood and you're not impressed at all. After all, they say, sin is a mistake. It's just a blunder. It's a mishap. We're only human. It's going to happen. And we're going to try to do better next time. So relax. But God takes no view on sin like this. God does not relax. God, from his word, opposes sin greatly. And he's not soft on it. It is wrong. It is a sin than to approach life with a mind that says that everything there is is now and there is no throne in heaven that judges men and women. And it's wrong. It's a sin to have a method of life that says all of life's events and how they are to be approached are only on the basis of one thing. How will they affect me? And not how will they appear to God and not how they will affect my fellow man. One has to do with loving God. The other has to do with loving our fellow man. The two things that Jesus said that we must do. You see, this is a moral universe. And this moral universe belongs to and is created by God. And God is the center of it and not humans. And God is the loving master of the universe. And God, who is wiser than we are, takes a better look at sin. And he understands what sin means. 
He understands that our thoughts and our words and our deeds rebel against him and they're going to harm us. They're going to harm our neighbor and they're going to make things worse. And they offend him. But God had a plan. He has freed us from our sins by Christ's blood. The baby that we've been singing about tonight in a manger is really the Savior on a cross. And the suffering of Christ by his blood shed on Calvary was not just the consequence of sin. It was the strategy of God to deal with sin. And so John uses one word to describe God's plan to free us. And the word is blood. Because the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on a cross 2,000 years ago. But some of you are saying this, that blood is awfully messy. It is messy. Because right now you have a picture of what God thinks of sin. And now you have a picture of what God thinks of us. A long, long time ago when people cared about these things, there was a prayer. And it was a prayer written down in a book called The Valley of Vision. And I'm going to read to you the prayer. Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the hideousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt. Show it to me by the crown of thorns, thy pierced hands and feet, thy bruised body, and thy dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. Its worth is infinite, its value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with every thought, my chains that hold me captive in the empire of my soul, sinner that I am. Why should the sun give me light? Why should the air give me breath? Why should the earth bear my tread? Its fruit nourish me. Its creatures subserve my ends. Yet thy compassions yearn over me. Your heart, heart, O God, hastens to my rescue. Your love, O God, endured my curse. Your love and mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in thy blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Now this night... If we are in Christ, then we are free. We are free from sin's penalty. We are free from sin's power. And one day in heaven, we'll be free from sin's presence. But if you are not in Christ tonight, you are not free. And to be very, very honest with you, you probably already know it. And so why would you stay that way when you've heard this evening that God loves you, that this baby Christ became the bleeding Christ to free you and I from our sins and show us his love. And Christian, why would we ever, ever again doubt his love? Now, and I close with this. If we try to understand life without a loving God, 
there's nothing but darkness. And if we try to explain Jesus Christ without explaining his death and without explaining his blood, then there is no significance. And all of us here this evening, Christmas Eve 2010, stand in need of both. And my only question to you this evening is where do you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tiding tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Would you please bow with me this evening? Maybe some of you will say this prayer. Oh God and Father, the time has come for me to repent and turn to the one who loves me and can free me from my sins with his blood. And I do this now and I mean it with all my heart. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit Be our abiding portion to all who belong to him. And God, we ask that you would please bless us this night and bless us forevermore. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen.